Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. After just one second, you might be able to guess what this is. It has introduced thousands of films. And for millions of people, it means one thing. It's movie time. It's so exciting because movies were such a part of our lives growing up. That's David Newman, a Hollywood composer and conductor. David has written scores for movies like Matilda, Ice Age, The Sandlot, Dr. Doolittle, Jingle All the Way, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and tons more. But David's not the only composer in his family. Everyone in Hollywood knows the Newman name. His cousin is Randy Newman, the composer behind the music of the Toy Story movies, Cars, James and the Giant Peach, and so many more. David's brother Thomas composed the scores for Finding Nemo, The Green Mile, The Shawshank Redemption, Skyfall, and we haven't even gotten to Emil Newman, Lionel Newman, or Maria Newman. Altogether, the Newman family has won 12 Oscars and been nominated for another 93, more than twice as many as any other family. My mom was the one that made us train. We all played violin from like age seven and piano, and we had a lot of theory and counterpoint when we were 12 and 13. So it just didn't seem all that abnormal, our family. That's because their father was also a legendary film composer. His name was Alfred Newman. Alfred composed the scores to over 200 classic movies, including The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Mark of Zorro, and the Grapes of Wrath. On top of that, Alfred was the one who actually wrote the 20th Century Fox fanfare. To tell that story, we need to go back more than 100 years to the earliest days of Hollywood. The first movie shot in Hollywood was The Count of Monte Cristo in 1908. A decade later, more than 20 studios had opened in Los Angeles or relocated there from the East Coast. One of these studios was Fox Film. Fox Films was founded in 1915 in New York by Hungarian immigrant William Fox. That's Aubrey Solomon. Aubrey's a film historian who has written several books on 20th Century Fox. When production began moving to Los Angeles for the benefit of better weather, Fox bought an existing studio facility and quickly added outdoor stages to it. At that time, most of the stages were outdoor. They were called glass stages because the sunlight was used for lighting. They didn't have enough artificial lighting at the time. But sunshine wasn't the only thing drawing these studios to L.A. They also moved out there to get away from the companies that controlled film production. At this time, all motion picture production was controlled by a monopoly called the Motion Picture Patents Company, which owned all exclusive rights to cameras, films, and processing laboratories. The MPPC was also called the Edison Trust, since Thomas Edison owned many of the patents for film technology. 
This combine of companies was super restrictive. For instance, they set the maximum length for a movie at two reels, which at the time was just 20 minutes total. They didn't think audiences could enjoy anything longer than that. They also wouldn't let actors be identified, since they knew that actors who became popular would end up costing more. Eventually, a few filmmakers decided to fight back. William Fox, along with Carl Lemley, who's founder of Universal Pictures, sued the Combine and won the right for any producer to make his own films. Once they were finally free from the vice grip of the MPPC, Fox Films started cranking out movies. Fox quickly ramped up production to over 50 films a year, many of them very successful, and many others now long forgotten. In the silent film era, most movie theaters had a live pianist, or sometimes even a small orchestra that would perform alongside the movie. Later, in 1926, movies got sound. The first movie with a pre-recorded synchronized soundtrack was called Don Juan. Suddenly, Hollywood was in desperate need of composers to write music for their movies. That worked out well for people like Alfred Newman, who had been playing music since childhood. He was a child prodigy pianist, first generation from Ukraine. He was one of 10 kids with a father that wasn't making any money and a very strong mother. Alfred's mother was determined to support her son's interest in music. The mother saw in him this ability at the piano and got him trained almost miraculously with no money. And he started doing vaudeville, playing for singers when he was 13, 14, 15, and sort of matriculated into Broadway in the early 20s. In the 1920s, Alfred's career took off. So all through the Roaring Twenties, Alfred Newman was one of the best-known Broadway conductors. Once movies with sound became all the rage, Hollywood started poaching talent from Broadway. By 1930, it was clear that movies were going to be talking. They needed music directors, so they went to Broadway and they hired Alfred Newman. When Alfred arrived in Hollywood, studios were still figuring out how to use music in films. If you ever go back and watch any early 30s movies, you can see it's all over the place. Some films just have music all the way through, but it doesn't really comment on the story. It's just sort of like silent film music. It's not very nuanced. Here's a clip from an early 1930s Western called Fighting Caravans. If I was, if I was not married, if I was all alone, will you stop me from coming? Why no. Not if your outfit's in good shape. Notice how the music is just kind of there, continuously, underneath the dialogue. Sure was a surprise to me. I thought the couch... You... you thought what? But anyhow, it was only a joke. Hmm. The whole movie is like that. But Newman and other Broadway composers took a more subtle approach. In just a few years, these composers revolutionized the way music was used in movies. They created what they called commentative music, which is what we would think of as underscore for a film now. In other words, you would use themes, motives, you'd vary the themes. This is common in opera, where every character might have their own theme that plays when they come on stage. And they kind of commandeered that and then made it into their own so that you got this golden age of film music. 
Soon enough, Newman's talent caught the attention of an up-and-coming writer and producer named Daryl Zanuck. Zanuck was a dynamo of creative energy, able to spin stories and scenarios at a record speed. He was considered a boy wonder of Hollywood. He was also a bit of a character who was known for bringing a horsewhip into meetings. He was a great polo player and a very active outdoorsman, so he had that macho energy. Daryl had recently started his own studio called 20th Century Pictures and asked Alfred to help with the music for their biggest movies. Newman was hired to write the music for the 20th Century movies. Newman was obviously versatile. He was quick and he understood where music was needed, where it was not. And obviously this was important to Zanuck, who spent most of his time working with scripts and editing. But there was another type of composition that Daryl needed help with. At the time, studios had started making short pieces of music that would identify their company, called fanfares. Nobody really invented the fanfares. They pretty much evolved from simple title cards that would list the production company or the producer's name. It's like what people try to do when they're writing commercials. You have five, ten seconds to make a statement. One of the first visually was Leo the Lion for Metro-Goldwyn, which later became Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in the mid-20s. Paramount's image was a mountain with 23 stars in a semicircle over it, and that came in in the late 1920s. That was reputedly representing the 23 cents that founder Adolf Zucker came to America with in his pocket. Paramount's original fanfare isn't the one we recognize today. Here's what it sounded like back then. Universal Pictures had an airplane circling the globe. You heard the sound effects of the engine. And Fox Film also had its own fanfare. Daryl asked Alfred to write the fanfare for his new company, 20th Century Pictures. The piece Alfred came up with will immediately sound familiar, but it doesn't have the same ending we're used to. He starts with this big percussion thing. And then there's just this phrase that you could imagine Roman legions going to war. There's something peculiarly New York tough American about that logo. It's heralding something that I think is what makes it so exciting. By the mid-30s, Fox Film was in financial trouble and ended up merging with 20th Century Pictures. The newly formed company was called 20th Century Fox. After the merger, Alfred recorded a higher quality version of the fanfare. They spent hours figuring out where to put mics, what instruments should play, what works with this technology. The technology is so terrible and yet the orchestra sounds so good. You have to work at that to get 
players to do that. So that at every note that they play, they know where they're going with it. They're not just playing notes, they're playing phrases. I think it became an iconic theme probably in the 30s and 40s when everybody was going to see newly released 20th Century Fox movies. And it was an audience grabber. I mean, it got you into the movie. It sort of announced that whatever was going to follow was going to be the greatest movie ever, which was really Daryl Zanuck's thesis. He always believed that whatever he was doing was the greatest. And, you know, it may not have been, but going into a movie, he believed in it, and he threw all his energy into it. And the music reflects that. This was the golden age of Hollywood. In the early 40s, 60% of Americans went to see a movie at least once a week. But over the next decade, that number went down fast. By the early 50s, it had dropped to less than 30%. The culprit was television. Of course, Hollywood wasn't going to give up without a fight. In the 50s, studios started experimenting with all kinds of gimmicks and new technology to get people back in theater seats. At the same time, Alfred added a whole new ending to his fanfare and created the version we recognize today. Eventually, one movie cemented this fanfare's place in film history forever. That's coming up after the break. The hardest part of starting a business is coming up with a great idea. For every air fryer, video doorbell, or smart speaker that's sold in huge numbers, there are thousands of others that never made it. So that's the hard part. Now, here's the easy part. Selling online with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. You don't need to know how to code or understand anything about design. And you definitely don't need a degree in accountancy. Just choose the template you like, upload some descriptions and images, and you're ready to start selling. You're probably already using Shopify and don't even realize it. That's because, according to their own data, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Huge companies like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen use Shopify, along with millions of other entrepreneurs from 175 countries around the world. Here's how you can get started. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com 20k, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash 20k now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash 20k. Congratulations to Sarah Harden for getting last episode's mystery sound right. That's the tune a Zojirushi rice cooker plays once the rice is ready. The melody dates back to a French ballet from the 16th century. When you start a batch of rice, the machine plays Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which is also the same melody as the ABC song. And here's this episode's mystery sound. If you know that sound, tell us at the web address mystery.20k.org. If you guess it right, you'll be entered to win one of our brand new super soft t-shirts. To check out our new swag, visit 20k.org shop. When I think about hiring, it just seems like it's more work, more stress, and more pressure. But here's how Indeed takes away all that worry. Indeed is the world's number one matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. 
Indeed cuts out the work of hiring with smart AI technology that helps you find the right candidate quickly. It takes the stress out of the process with scheduling, screening, and messaging all in one place. So you know exactly what you're up to in the hiring process because Indeed keeps track of everything for you. Then Indeed relieves the pressure of choosing the right person. That's because their skill tests give you the confidence that you've got the right candidate. So now when you think of hiring, don't think of all those negatives. Just think of Indeed. To try Indeed for yourself with a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility, visit indeed.com slash hertz. Just go to indeed.com slash hertz right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hertz. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes. But you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com slash 20k. netsuite.com slash 20k. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Oh, what was the drums? The 20th Century Fox Fanfare is one of the most recognizable pieces of music ever. If you ask almost anyone to sing it, you'll probably hear something like this. Oh, wait, no, it keeps going. I think that's how it goes. (laughs) Alfred Newman wrote that piece in the early 30s. This fanfare was heard by millions of people as 20th Century Fox released hit movie after hit movie. But by the late 50s, the golden age of Hollywood was coming to an end. Most Americans had a TV in their home, and people were going out to the movies less and less. In response, Hollywood came up with all kinds of gimmicks to get people's attention. Some of these worked better than others. On the one hand, 3D movies were a minor success. The maze is the first picture in three dimension that delves into the weird and terrifying world of the supernatural. On the other hand, you had smell-o-vision, where scents were sprayed into the theater along with the movie. That idea only made it into one movie, called Scent of Mystery. The film used 30 different smells, including shoe polish, peppermint, brandy, and pipe tobacco. Some people even left the theater feeling sick, and after that, the idea was dropped. One innovation that did stick was called CinemaScope. CinemaScope was a process that was developed by 20th Century Fox to counteract the effect of television. It was a process of squeezing the image onto the frame and then unsqueezing it in projection so you'd got an image that was 2.35 times as wide as it was high. This new technology was game-changing, 
And today, almost everything we watch is in widescreen. The head of 20th Century Fox, Daryl Zanuck, believed in Cinemascope so strongly that he even filmed a promo video for it. We refuse to settle for something secondary, or something somebody claims is almost as good as Cinemascope. We believe the theater goers of the world, if they are to continue to patronize American motion pictures, are entitled to the best. To help promote Cinemascope, Daryl asked Alfred Newman to create a longer version of the studio's fanfare. The first half would play over the famous 20th Century Fox logo, while the second half would play over the new Cinemascope logo. This was the first version in stereo, and it was recorded with a 60-piece orchestra. It started the same way, then added a whole new melodic section to the second half that ended in a big crescendo. Finally, the entire melody was complete, and it was all thanks to widescreen. Alfred continued to win Oscars for his scores through the 1960s. But while he was still in demand as a composer, his fanfare was being used less and less. By the time we get to the 60s, the logo sort of fell out of favor, and logos weren't used very much. There was a new generation of directors, people like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Stanley Kubrick. And these directors didn't always want a big, loud drum roll at the start of their movies. Think of the early 70s and The Godfather and Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde. It all really changed. In some movies, you still see the 20th Century Fox logo, but without any music. Depending on the film, the logo visual was used without any soundtrack. It had definitely lost some of its cachet. But as luck would have it, one of these new directors ended up saving the 20th Century Fox theme. His name was George Lucas, and his movie was called Star Wars. When John Williams did Star Wars, released 1977, he used the logo as not just a fanfare, but as a call to the movie itself. So the fanfare is in the key of B-flat. And then there's the silence where the thing rolls. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. And then bang, that chord comes in. It's the same chord as the first chord of the logo after the drumbeat. So it's used as a heralding of this massive story. It's part of the score. Thanks to Star Wars, the 20th Century Fox fanfare was popular again. It may have seemed corny to the directors in the 70s, but it was the perfect fit for the blockbusters of the 80s. Movies like Predator and Die Hard used it proudly. And of course, it played at the start of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Unfortunately, Alfred Newman wasn't around to see the rebirth of his fanfare. He passed away in 1970, shortly after completing the last score of his career for the movie Airport. His impact on the world of movies was enormous. Not only did he write that fanfare and score hundreds of films, he also helped launch the careers of some of the most famous film composers of all time. You talk to John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Mancini, Alex North, Bernard Herrmann, they all got their start from him. All he had to do was recommend them. That was it. He was a legend. He was one of a kind.
Alfred may have been gone, but his fanfare was still being heard in theaters around the world. The version he recorded in 1954 was used up until the 1980s, when it was updated by his brother. Alfred Newman's brother Lionel re-recorded it in 1982. Then Bruce Broughton in 1994 with a 90-piece orchestra. In the late 90s, 20th Century Fox renamed its famous scoring stage in the Newman's honor. A scoring stage is a fancy, decked-out studio where most of the music for a movie gets recorded. To mark the occasion, David was brought in to record a new version of his father's fanfare. The moment was captured by a TV crew from E! News. Alfred's son, composer David Newman, was on hand to conduct the new recordings. Here we go. Ready? Ready? For David, the experience was an honor, but it was also intimidating. I always find it frustrating whenever I try to do anything of Alfred Newman. I just can't get up to that level. So I'm not super pleased with that recording, (laughs) to be quite honest. David doesn't really enjoy conducting any of his dad's music. The bar is just too high. It's so excellent the way that it was recorded and the way it sounded and the way he trained the orchestra. It's just almost impossible to do it now. Sadly, between the rise of streaming and big changes to the company, the 20th century fanfare might be on its way out. These days, most of us spend a lot more time watching TV than we do at the movie theater. Of course, streaming platforms like Netflix, HBO, and Disney Plus all have their own audio logos. But these are much shorter than movie fanfares, which makes sense. I mean, does anyone really want to hear the entire 20th century theme eight times during a binge watch of The Mandalorian? I get it for a TV show that 10 episodes, the same music, okay? I mean, I get that. In fact, you won't hear the 20th century Fox fanfare in any of the new Star Wars movies. In 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm, the company behind Star Wars. When Star Wars The Force Awakens came out a few years later, it was the first Star Wars movie that didn't begin with the fanfare. The new Star Wars films actually are not Fox Pictures anyways, they're Disney films. So there's no reason to have the Fox logo on them. Five years later, Disney bought 20th Century Fox and renamed it 20th Century Studios. In the handful of movies they've released under that name, they've kept the fanfare in place. But of course, Disney also owns Marvel, Pixar, and a bunch of other companies that all have their own sonic branding. Between all of them, it's hard to say how often we'll hear the 20th century theme in the future. These days, more and more movies are being released on streaming and in theaters at the same time. Given the option, how many people will choose the theater over their own living room? It's always hard to predict the future. But in David's opinion, the writing is on the wall for movie theaters. To him, that feels like a huge loss. I feel terrible about it. I think it'll get figured out, but I don't think it's going to be going to movies and movie theaters, which I just think is a a shame. As I said, I grew up on it. For a lot of us, going to the movies and hearing that iconic fanfare was such an important part of our lives. It meant you were about to laugh or cry or be amazed by what you saw on screen. It also meant you were about to share that experience with everyone around you. 
I remember waiting in line for Star Wars for three hours. And when that logo came on, I mean, I'll never forget that as long as I live. It's got a lot of personal feelings that go with it, a lot of history, all the movies that I've seen with my friends and my family and the now dear departed who um, sat with me through these movies. It's an emotional thing. I can't explain it. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team dedicated to making television, film, and games sound incredible. To hear what happens over there, follow DeFacto Sound on Instagram. This episode was written and produced by Andrew Anderson and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was story edited by Casey Emerling. It was sound edited by Soren Bejan. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Thanks to our guests, David Newman and Aubrey Solomon. What other themes or jingles do you think that we should cover? You can tell us on Facebook, Twitter, on our subreddit, or by writing hi at 20k.org. Thanks for listening. 